So I have a book coming out in about a week. It's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. And people sometimes make the mistake of thinking, ah, you have a publicist who handles all the PR, right? And it's true. HarperCollins has given me some outstanding publicists to work with on this book. But in this game, you also have to be your own publicist. So all I'm doing these days is reaching out to everyone I know and people I don't know with a podcast or a radio show or a blog. Hey, can I get you a book? Hey, can I get on your show? Hey, can you interview me? Hey, do you have any interests? I'm lining up excerpts. I'm running promotions. I'm signing book plates. I've printed stickers and bookmarks and t-shirts. I'm doing fucking Instagram stories, which I never do. Because to last as an author, you have to be your own pimp. You just have to. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Tyler Dunn, founder of Go Long, the substack devoted to long-form pro football journalism. And Tyler is also the author of a brand new book, his first, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. This is episode number 281. Let's Thanks, Miang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Tyler. First, welcome back to Two Riders Slinging Yang. You're at your second appearance, uh, putting you in a very select company with Jamel Hill, Mirren Fader, and my wife, and John Wertheim. So there you go. Yeah. One of those is not like the others, I must say. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm honored to be here with the GOAT himself. So yeah, thank you, Jeff. You have a book out, the, the Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. And I'm up to page 76. And I'm reading about Kellen Winslow. And you quote Hank Bauer, former San Diego running back. I think, is he an announcer now, Hank Bauer, with the Chargers? Am I wrong? Yeah, he does stuff with the team now. And he says something to you about Chuck Muncie, who from my childhood is one of the great running backs of all time, no doubt about it. And you wrote, Chuck Muncie was a severely underrated running back who, Bauer insists, was more physically gifted than both O.J. Simpson, okay, and Bo Jackson. <laughs> Tyler, do we have to throw down here? I mean, is this is this what we're doing? We, I you, was wondering where you were going with this. I, I totally forgot that. <laughs> are you riding? Are you riding the Chuck Munty Express past past a guy who ran a four one three forty in college? Well, little do you know that that's the secret book I'm working on right now. Why Munty. the real folk hero is Chuck Munty, and it's going to put yours to absolute shame. It's, 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 it's secret of it's dropping the day after. So I guess the cat's out of the bag. Chuck Muncie was a great running back and a physical freak and a marvel. But I'm just saying, I'm not sure he was Bo Jackson. Not that you're saying that. It was a quote. It's actually funny. So, okay, we're here. <laughs> and you've written your first ever book. And it is, as I said, The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. It's being published by 12, which is actually, I got to say, a great publishing house, a very well-regarded publishing house. And I'm fascinated by a lot of things, but here's where I want to start. I would say my book career is based on hyper-specific, which is I'm going to write a book about this team, I'm going to write a book about this league, or I'm going to write a book about this player. Like people come along and say, you should do a book about quarterbacks of the 80s. And I'm like, nah, that's really wide. That's too big for me. It's too broad for me. And you have a book about tight ends, like about the subject of tight ends, which feels incredibly intimidating and broad to me. What am I missing in approaching a subject like quote unquote tight ends? I think the way I approach this project 
from day one, Jeff, is I, I need to take on something that I am like insanely passionate about because we, we've talked about, you know, book stuff a little bit. I've, I'm buddies with like Seth Wickersham, some folks who, you know, the, the heavy hitters who have written some of the best sports books, you know, in existence. And the, the, the bit of advice that sticks with me that keeps coming up in every conversation is if you're going to write a book, you better have a real passion for it. Like you, you better love that topic and love the process of reporting and digging and one conversation leading to another and another and another. And this topic being at the absolute forefront of your brain, because that's, that's what this is all about. I mean, you've, you've done this many times over. If you're just kind of eh about the topic, then you shouldn't be writing that book. And, and I, I would say the more I thought about the NFL tight end and the more it kind of spoke to my own football fans soul, right? Like I, I just <clears throat> playing at a young age, I've always been drawn to the inherent violence of the game, everything that football teaches you at a young age, the, the accountability, the leadership, the teamwork, all that stuff that, that I, I really think that football teaches on a, on a level that's unlike any other sport, but that this position is really the sport in, in one profession, one job, one craft, because you got to catch, you got to block, you've got to be selfless. Everything is right there at tight end, the position that Mike Dicka really created. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like overnight, oh my God, I love, I, I love this topic. It was kind of gradual. I, the more I just started talking to these guys and talking to people around them, the more I just couldn't get enough. I mean, the stories are insane. People can can read them all. I'm sure we'll get into some, but from Shockey to Gronk to Gonzalez to Coates to Dicka to Kittle, it just, it kind of spoke to like my inner football soul in a way that to me did feel specific enough to take on where I wasn't really worried about, okay, I need to find a niche and like attack this narrow lane of this one team, this one player. So I I think that there's going to be a lot of appeal to a lot of markets, but at the core, it's like, if you like real football and the stuff we saw last night with the rough in the passer for tackling a quarterback is pissing you off. Like this can be your Bible. <laughs> this could be the book that speaks to you. So I was reading last night, I was reading uh, specifically about Kellen Winslow. Cause he's kind of an iconic figure from my youth. All right. You wrote here uh, bump and run coverage became the rage, but Don Correal had answers for this too. Pre-snap the chargers would send receivers in motion. So it's tougher to lay a finger on them. This also tipped off Fouts whether the defense was playing man-to-man or zone coverage. And by deploying one running back and two tight ends more than any other team, 12 personnel, the Chargers balanced the field out. Defenses couldn't automatically tilt a strong side linebacker and strong safety toward an obvious heavy side of a formation. Drop that strong safety down on Eric Seaver's side and Winslow drew a linebacker and man coverage. It is the nerdiest, most fascinating shit ever. It is so nerdy. I love that you give a shit. Like in the way I'm like, Bo Jackson, blah, 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 blah. Like that place where you like actually... It can't, you can't just say like it was a formation or the offense was blank. Like you seem super, 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 super geeky about this stuff. I think it's a good mix too, because honestly, I wasn't sure like what direction blood and guts would take, like the rise of the NFL tight end. Is it going to be just all these stories of, and we've got them in there, like Jeremy Shockey as a high school senior, just beating the absolute living shit of a, out of a dude who throws a bottle at him and reenacting at the bar. Like that, there is a lot of stuff in there like that. Rob Gronkowski, the parties he threw, you know, after winning an AFC championship game and throwing back drinks with Waka Flock of Flame. So I'm like, all right, is, is it going to be all these 
crazy ass like partying stories or is it going to be traumatic stuff? You know, Jimmy Graham growing up in a, in a group home and fearing for his life. Dallas Clark, his, his mom dying in his arms when he's a high school senior. I feel like it, it is kind of a little bit of everything, right? And in that chapter, I wasn't able to get Kellen Winslow. I mean, my God, you, you've written books that are epics without talking to that player, you know, Brett Favre, Walter Payton. And sometimes that, that forces your hand in a lot of ways to learn stuff that you're not going to learn if you do sit down with the guy. That Kellen Winslow chapter, it kind of went that nerdy route, the Don Coryell route. Like schematically, this is the dude who just took the tight end position to another realm. So that I kind of leaned in with that a lot with, with Kellen Winslow. And obviously, you know, the, the, the scene there at the Orange Bowl is, is really what, what put the position on the map because everybody's watching. Granted, I wasn't born for another seven years, so I'm not sure myself. But what I've been told and what I've researched and what I've heard is, yes, that, the epic in Miami, that, that was the moment that just put the tight end position on the map nationally. Two things I want to say is, number one, as you get older, and I'm older than you, you get more and more tired of people telling you they weren't born for things that you were born for. It's like the most... <laughs> I wasn't there for that. What was that like, Grandpa? I'm like, uh. number two, you're doing a book about tight ends. Kellen Winslow is one of the great tight ends of all time. You can argue one of the greatest. You would think Kellen Winslow would want to talk to you for a book about tight ends. In fact, it almost makes no sense that he wouldn't want to talk to you. What efforts do you make? And at one point, do you give up and say, fuck, he's not talking to me? Oh, that was a funny one. I, I got him on the phone. We talked uh, for a few minutes and he he was all about it. He said, hey, give me a give me a call back. Like in October of last year, I think I reached out to him in September and I did and didn't hear back. I called him again and again and again and again and texted again and again and again and again. And, you know, I, I don't know what the final count was, but it was probably borderline stalker. You know, it was just like, OK, at this point, he doesn't want anything to do with this, which is fine. Right. Like, honestly, more tight ends were willing to get together for this project than I anticipated. And then some uh, really, I mean, to- Tony Gonzalez, like, yeah. Flying down here to Austin, Texas, let's, let's hang out. Same with Jeremy Shockey, Ben Coates, you know, chatted with Gronk at length, Kittle at length, um, Dallas Clark for several hours, Mike Dick. I mean, we're down at his golf course hanging out. So it was, uh, you know, I, I feel like it is access-based, right? I wanted to kind of take the reader along this cross-country tour, like for the search of, you know, the soul of the game pretty much. But in a good, I think it was almost – I guess you could call this a spin zone if you want. I think it was almost a good thing that Kellen Winslow, Shannon Sharp didn't want to cooperate because the stories around those guys were exceptional. I mean, Anthony Lynn, Terrell Davis, everybody around uh, Richard Basil as college quarterback, everybody around Shannon Sharp just had like hysterical stories. Jamal Lewis that Shannon isn't going to tell himself. <laughs> So I, I, I can't wait for you to read that one because I feel like it, 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 around, it gave the book a good balance, right? It's, it, there, there's you know, close to 100 people talking in this book. Wait, I just want to say you handled that beautifully because I, as well as you, are in this situation where someone says, or I have a Bo Jackson book coming out and people say, did you talk to Bo? The transition you have to make when you're promoting a book is the quick no, but blah, 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 blah. And I just want to say you did that beautifully, like perfectly, pitch perfect. That was fantastic, Gary. I did say that, you know, I was, I was badgering the hell out of him. Yeah, of course. course. And also like, it's like part of this job is the reality that people aren't always going to talk and you have to work your way around it. And you just sort of, you put your, put your head down and you move forward and that's all you can do. 
you're a guy, you've been a long time football writer, Buffalo, Milwaukee, Bleacher Report, now go long. I'm a nerd about this stuff. How did you get the book deal? Which is not to be translated as who the fuck would give you a book deal. It was, I, I think, I'd like to think it really, it really kind of stemmed from the Bleacher Report experience and, and doing so much long form on a national scale with, with BR because worked with some awesome, awesome people there. Jonathan Abrams being one of them. I could be wrong, but I'm thinking back. I believe he put in a really good word for me with an agent he has worked with. And I talked to the agent. We talked about ideas. And this agent was tied in with 12, with a bunch of publishing companies. And honestly, it was bada bing, bada boom. We had a deal. You know, I, had, I obviously put together a, a pitch, you know, that is probably nothing like the pitches you put together. I kind of did mine. Like I didn't really talk to these tight ends a hell of a lot when I put the pitch together, but you still have to conceptualize an idea. Like, here's what I'm thinking about the tight end position, the rise of it, the stories that could be in here. I've got connections with this agency, that tight end, this coach, one way or another, we're going to full court attack this thing and make it happen. And then they liked it. So yeah, 12 was all about it. And it, Took off from there, you know. It wasn't really, um, it wasn't really too arduous, I guess. Wait, I'm actually offended by this entire experience. So you're saying, you, you didn't shop it around to a bunch of people, you didn't write a 50 page proposal, you didn't go through the insecurities and rejection of a first book inevitability. None of that. <sighs> I, I wish I had a sob story for you. I don't. I don't, Jeff. It was. I'm unbelievably fortunate and blessed. You know, the, the timing, here's the thing though. I knew, I'm not really sure. I, I want to ask you too, like how much time you've had to work on your books. Cause we wanted to turn this thing around. I think it was fairly quickly. So probably we closed the deal around August, September of last year. So I started seeing tight ends September and into Christmas time, into early spring. And then I turned in the manuscript you know, thank God. I mean, Sean Desmond, everybody at 12 is unbelievable to work with. I can't say enough. They were awesome every step of the way. I'm not just saying that. I, I genuinely mean it. They gave me a month extension, with which really, really helped. And I we got that manuscript, I want to say like the first week of April. So it was, it was pretty quick because we wanted to get it out, you know, around this tight end week, you know, that George Kittle created because it's, you know, right ahead of the holidays too. So I, I think, I would hope like my assurance that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to make this happen and we're going to make it happen in less than a year. Ho hopefully that, that was a, to, to my benefit through that Wait, process. So total time of working on the book was less than a year. Yeah. Yeah. So you're working on this. Are you reporting and writing as you at the same time? Like, would you go, go spend time with Tony Gonzalez in Texas immediately write the chapter after you're done with Tony Gonzalez? Like how did you actually structure writing the book? Right. I think I started writing it around, Thanksgiving time, you know, and I was working, Tony Gonzalez might've been the first chapter. I, I really started breaking down what helps with this book. And I think it's when people read it, it's super user-friendly because you can definitely jump around tight ends. Like you can go to Gronk, you can pop over to Ben Coates. You can read Mark Bruner. If you're a Steelers fan, like Greg Olson, you can kind of move around yet at the same time as I did what you, the way you just described it, but as I'm going, I'm, I'm retweaking and tweaking and th things are still kind of connecting because you hear something and then this chapter would connect with that chapter, like Dicka, Shockey, there were so many parallels from different eras. So 
it definitely got around to that point where it has that narrative arc where I'd still recommend reading it from chapter one to 15. Uh, but that helped like in terms of the time limit, it helped that, I, you know what, Jeff, I approached it. Like I've approached writing features my entire life where I wanted to treat each chapter like its own long form, only a few were, you know, extra, extra long form. I think Shaki and Gonzalez and Grant came out about, you know, 10, 11,000 words. So um, it, it, the timing wise, the, the format of the book that that's certainly helped. But we also had Sunny in July. <laughs> we had our second kid in July, and you now I'm running a business. And my wife is a freaking rock star, Gina. I mean, she's at home with you know a newborn and a and a one and a half year old as I'm gallivanting around the country, you know, throwing drinks back with Shockey. So it was a team effort, as you know. I mean, you need a a wife, and you need your parents and your in-laws and everybody chip. And there were so many times my parents, I grew up like an hour South of Buffalo in the Southern tier. I drive down to Ellicottville, Salamanca, and my parents would watch the kids and I'm at the Salamanca library, you know, working on a Ben Coates chapter. Like, you know, you find that window of time to write or transcribe for a while. It was like late at night, you know, when the kids are asleep from you know staying up to one or two. And then as I got going, I'm like, this isn't sustainable. So I started waking up at like 3.30 a.m. Oh. And that morning up, up to lunchtime was such a perfect window. And here's a question for you. Sorry to ramble on and on, Jeff, but people have written books, really recommended like transcri- transcription services like Otter or this or that. And yeah. I did the free trial on Otter and it just drove me insane. I couldn't do it. I feel like it was taking more time to fix the mistakes. So what eats up the most time is you know, transcribing. I don't know what the final word count was, but it was like half a million. It was insane, but you have to do it. Like I need to transcribe every single word, print it out, get the highlighters out, start mapping out what goes where, organizing. I didn't want to like throw that process off in the sake of time. So there were no corners cut like at all with this book. And I'm I, I'm just thrilled with how it turned out. And it's so, it's so important to like, you got, you just got to sacrifice some time to, to do it right. Um, transcribing is the one thing over the years I've gone a little more lazy on because I found that I would, if I had two years to write a book, if I measured all the time I took transcribing, it would be like four months combined of that time. And, um, and I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate transcribing interviews, but I feel like for a book like this, especially where I have how many tight ends total did you profile? So there's 15 and then I want to say there's like three or four like mini chapters in there. So I feel like if I were doing, if I were focusing on 15 people, I would actually do the same thing you did, which is transcribe those interviews myself to embed them in my head, know the smart points. And also like transcribing costs a lot of money. Like it just costs a lot of money. And I'm kind of like with you, a lot of people use the, uh, the inexact electronic transcription devices. And I hate reading through a transcript and the guy might've said I had soup for breakfast and it'll read, I pooped in my head first, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, yeah. like that stuff drives me crazy. So I'm uh, one mistake. Right. It just takes one one screw up in your reputation and the book is shot. Right. Yeah. And this is annoying. I don't know. It's a transcription and books is the great mystery of it all. Like nobody has come up. I've had this conversation a million times. Nobody has come up with the perfect way to handle this. So it sounds like you managed. Um, all right. I'm fascinated. I read the chapter on John Mackey, legendary tight end. And you are a football Die hard. You are a football guy. You love football. I love football, but I think after writing the Walter Payton book and seeing who he was at the end of his life, I view football probably with a little more uh, 
I don't know, just like it's become harder for me to watch. I don't know if you're in that place or not because you love football. John Mackey wound up having severe CT. He died. There's a foundation now in his name. The chat, and I'm not criticizing you, but the, the chapter you wrote is sort of about the greatness of John Mackey and his, his influence on tight ends and on football, which is enormous. But football also did kind of destroy the guy, like physically. And I wonder, like, when you're writing a book about a, tie, a position that is this violent, this, you know, physical and physically draining, do you just make a conscious decision the book is not about this? Or are you sort of conflicted on how to handle that? Fantastic question, because Chris Borland asked me that same question when we got together for a Bleach Report story, like back in 2016. So like a year after he steps away, he shocks the world. You know, one of the, the best young linebackers is quitting football because of concussion concerns. And, you know, he's un, un, an unbelievable human being. And just uh, those conversations will stay with me forever. At one point he looked at me, he's like, can I ask you a question? Like, how do you reconcile covering the sport when you know this about concussions, when you know head trauma? Like we, I mean, reading League of Denial is what really opened up my eyes, like a lot of people. And just the fact that I can't get that first chapter out of my head, the brain jiggling around in the skull. Like you can put these Mars attacks helmets over dudes as much as you want. It's bullshit. Like, give me a break, NFL. Like it's not, I don't really think anything you can do to a helmet is going to substantially change the game. As long as there's blocking, as long as there's tackling, there's concussions, there's violence, all of that. So to answer like you and Chris Borland, to me, it's the hypocrisy. It's the dishonesty. It's the fact that the NFL just won't own it. Is this a violent game? And it, it will always be. The players are getting bigger, faster, stronger. You're not going to change that until it's flag football. So don't give us you know, the heads up football infomercials. Don't put these Mars attack helmets on guys. Don't be throwing around flags and fines for a, a, a routine tackle. Just because you want to tell mom at home, little Johnny can play football because football is safe. So to me, it's like, I've come to grips with the fact this is a violent game. And I've talked to tons of players over the years, former players, current guys, Don Mikowski, you know, all, all of these players who have, been through serious brain trauma, serious injuries. The majority say they do it all over again because they signed up for it and they would accept the risk. Ben Coates, when you get to that chat, like he's probably the tight end in this book who suffered the most pain, the most injuries. A lot of that chapter is him and everything he's dealing with today. Like even getting up the stairs is difficult for Ben Coates driving around town. Other people are driving him around by the end of it, He's like, I would do it again because the game did so much good for me that I still, I do get conflicted to your point. I mean, shit, when you see Dane Jackson's neck almost just pop off of his torso a few weeks, it's, it's horrifying. It, it is. But at the, I think at its core, what the good that football can, can, can do for humanity, it, it is absolutely worth going down that road, going down that lane and seeing, okay, why, why is this important? Why is this good? How is it being preserved? And what drives me nuts more than the fact that, you know, that players are, that, 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 that the NFL is a violent game is the fact that the NFL is kind of hypocritical about it and they're not honest about it. I think just stop trying to find this middle ground that doesn't exist. To me, it's almost like if you see it, you know what it is, right? The, the whole porn analogy. <laughs> like we're, like I, the days of head hunting across the middle, Jack Tatum, not good, right? I'm not advocating for the decapitation of players across the middle of the field. Like there has to be some regulation. I just think that the overcorrection is 
kind of gross and sick. And I think that what makes football great it, it is the physicality, is the violence. That's why we're all watching. Well, well, all right. So you're us. I mean, you say the you guys these exact same questions of me having written about Favre, Walter Payton, now Bo Jackson. You write this book. On the one hand, you could probably write for 90% of the guys you profiled. And now he is blank. Now his knees are shot. Now he has trouble remembering. Now, whatever. But you're also writing a book celebrating their lives and celebrating their experiences. So do you sort of take the, the stance after a while? People don't want to read about this with every single guy. What makes football special, though? I don't know. Maybe we disagree. I feel like these are gladiators out there. These are these are dudes playing a game that us in normal society, we wouldn't even think of living this this kind of life. Like, I mean, George Kittle put it so well. It's like there, there isn't a profession like this out there where you're you're in training camp. You're, you're, you're bashing into other dudes. You're getting into training camp fights. You're swinging. You're hitting. You're fighting for a job. And oh, by the way, if you tweak your angle, if you get hurt, you might be out of a job. Like the pressure mentally is is just um, palpable day in and day out. And you want to kill the dude across the line. And then you go into the locker room. You go into the cold tub and you're sitting by each other and you're laughing about it. Like you don't get that at the bank. You don't get that at the library. You don't get that at a pharmacy. And to me, there's something um, pretty special about that. Like it is entertaining. Like we, we want, we're, we, we want to watch that. We want to learn more about that. Like what, what goes into that desire to enter that world and succeed in that world, these tight ends, that's what they do. Like they, these are the guys more than any other position. I think that, bring that to life because you have to do everything. I mean, you're in the trenches. You're also going down the field to catch a pass. Like like Dallas Clark said, like the receivers hate us because we're taking targets away from them. The linemen hate us because we're stepping on their toes. We're kind of like, you know, the redheaded stepchild here. Nobody likes us. So it kind of teaches you a humbleness that way. They're the most underpaid position next to like specialists and fullbacks. For whatever reason, don't get paid that much either. So it teaches us a lot about life in general. I mean, it felt like we were sitting in, like a therapy session at times talking to Tony Gonzalez and Dallas Clark and they're wrapping their heads around this life that they've led. Um, I think there's a lot of good that comes out of the, the life lessons that they teach. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who is very angry about the results of the VMA awards. I am never leaving my room again. Never. Don't worry, Casey. 17 will get another chance next year. Not as best new artist, Dad. You only have one shot. I'm devastated. You know, I spoke with Mingyu and Jung Han and Hoshi and Wan Wu and DK and The Eight and Joshua and June and S Coops and Woozy and Vernon and Sung Kwan. What about Dino? Did you talk to Dino? Yeah, yeah, I talked to Dino too. And I told them I was going to go to RoyalRetros.com and order them all throwback USFL jerseys, stitched, vintage, retro. And even though it was just over the phone, I could tell they were smiling. Because now, thanks to the kings of throwback merchandise, they're winners too. Wow, Dad, you're the best. No, honey, Duff Cameron is the best. That's a low blow. So you and I, I'm sure, both know parents who push their kids into sports and they really want their kids to become athletes. And the dream is you become a professional athlete. This is a weird out of nowhere question, but I actually wonder this a lot. Being a professional athlete, as you noted, is a field full of insecurity. It is an insanely insecure field because there's always someone new there to take your job. You are judged very literally on performance and output, and it is all there statistically in front of people 
who are judging you. And they always want someone who can do your job cheaper. In fact, they will take someone a little worse than you if he is significantly cheaper. Do you think athletes have happier lives than dentists, writers, garbage men, construction workers? Is it actually a gateway to happiness? That's such a great question. It depends on the player. I don't want to paint it like with one broad stroke, but probably not for a lot of guys. I mean, take a look at how they adjust to life after they're done playing a lot, obviously struggle. They don't know how to step out of this insane world and, you know, have a nine to five job. There's just, there's no, um, there's no off ramp into normal society when you've for a decade just been trying to cream, you know, your employees day in and day out, your coworkers day in and day out. Like, yeah, I, I think it's unbelievably hard for, for guys to adjust. And it, more than anything, I feel like it's um, the adrenaline rush and the thrill. And football is different than any other sport because if you're on the field, if you're a defensive player and you screw up your assignment, I mean, you might get yourself killed, but you might get your teammate killed. I mean, that Dane Jackson collision I noted earlier, I mean, Tremaine Edmonds, a teammate, is just blasting into the fray and knocks his own guy out like friendly fire. It's That stuff can happen in, in a blink of an eye. It takes just a different level of adrenaline rush, day in and day out, game in and game out, practice in and practice out, that when you, when you leave that world, how do you scratch that itch? Everybody struggles with that, I feel like, no doubt. And I think that that's what leads to sadness, leads to depression. How do you find that that thrill? And in a weird way, a lot of these tight ends, I think a lot of them manage really, really well because they, they're able to tap into that thrill in other ways. I mean, Jeremy Shockey said he's nobody hears much from him, right? He's not really on social media beyond an Instagram photo here and there, but he is loving life. Trust me. He, he, he jet sets all over the world. He cracks business deals. And he says he gets in guys faces over business deals. And this MFR, he's trying to screw me. Like he, he uses that competitiveness for good. He's making more money now than he ever did playing. So you can use that for good in the business world in different ways if you're smart enough. And I think a lot of these tight ends are unbelievably smart next to the quarterback. Nobody has to know more on the field than the tight end because you have to do so much. So I think they are, by and large, able to apply that, you know, after they're done playing. Do you think most athletes, retired athletes, I'm sure you've interviewed a gazillion by now, enjoy telling stories of the glory days or feel like they're just, you know, you know, a flying amber always sort of stuck in the past? I think they enjoy it. (laughs) You know, I think there's definitely some players that are like on autopilot and they regurgitate the same stories, right? Like we've. You know, we both got to know Brett Favre and a lot of those old Favre stories. I'm sorry, you don't want me talking about your book. But but a lot of those stories, like the the whole with Ty Detmer, like not knowing a nickel defense. Like I've heard that from so many people so many times over. I I feel though, like a lot of a lot of players, if you're not like a star of all stars, they do have a lot of stories that they love to share because they, they haven't had the chance to really share them. And even, even some of these tight ends, like that was one of my worries going into this, Jeff, like how are these, some of these stars at the position, like we've heard a lot of these legendary, you know, tales that you know, come, become a fishing story over time that the fish just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, are there going to be like fresh stories for them to share and sitting down with them, like eye to eye, getting to know them, looking at them. They did. I mean, they couldn't wait to dive in. To some of these stories and um i mean tony gonzalez for one 
obviously, you know, he set every tight end record when he retired. He's got a story in this book that I had never heard before, you know, Googling the hell out of it. I don't think it's been out there, but getting into, uh, let's just call it a bit of a rivalry with Mike Malarkey when he gets to Atlanta. Everybody's been asking me, why is he in a Falcons jersey on your book cover? Well, I think you'll understand when you get to that part of the book because they butted heads in an epic way that I had never heard before, right? And that's a story he could not wait to tell. And don't worry, we, we get Malarkey's side of the story too, but um, I think they get getting that many fresh stories. They, they, they genuinely enjoyed it. I, I think that, you know, by, by and large, there's a lot of dudes out there that they, they just love – they love ball. They love talking about it. It's a way to kind of tap into that adrenaline rush that they missed from many years ago. And that's, that's the case. Well, don't you also think in a way guys have a familiar five stories or whatever that they go to with the media, because in this era, it's a lot of quick hits. So it's like, we have Tony Gonzalez on with us today. Tony, blah, 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 played for so-and-so. Tony, what was the craziest memory of your career? Oh, I remember this time, blah, blah, blah. Well, Tony, what, what about your time in Atlanta? Oh, it was good. Blah, blah, blah. Matt Ryan. And if you are a reporter and you actually take the time to go and fly and sit across from him yeah. and he tells you a story and you follow with, well, I know that, but what about blah, blah, blah. And he says, da, da, da. and then you've come back with, well, blah, 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 blah. That's how you get the good stories. Like they're on autopilot to tell the same five stories and you need to interrupt the autopilot. It's on us. Right. I mean, it we got to do our, our homework right. completely. Like I trust me, I've screwed up many times over and stuff where like you, you fly somewhere for a story and, you know, maybe you didn't do enough research and you start just asking vague general questions. Of course, they're going to go into autopilot. I don't blame them. Like, why would they give you good shit if you're just going to be lazy and ask vague questions about, oh, what was this like or that? But when and you, you've noted this several times, it's, it's such a great piece of advice. Like read every article, every book, everything you can about this tight end or this player or this team. So you go in with a built in knowledge built an encyclopedia on that topic, then you get creative. Then you can like gently go one direction or other. And then you just have to listen, you know, and, and instead of just going in and having a list of questions, like that, this happens so many times with these tight ends. Like they, they bring something up like that feud with malarkey. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to go down this road now. Like did not anticipate this. And uh, it does come back to just being there. If you can't, like you're not going to get it in a phone call or a zoom. Like I wanted to, physically sit down, hang out, throw some drinks back with these tight ends. Do you find having a beer or two with a subject is different than having a coffee or two with a subject? I'm actually being sincere. Do you feel like that makes the beverage of choice makes a difference? I think so. Yeah. I think the truth comes out when you've got a, a drink. Dude, that's for me, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that we were sitting there and, you know, these tight ends are getting hammered drunk. That wasn't the case, <laughs> but uh, casually at a bar, hanging out. I mean, Jeremy Shockey's, you know, reliving that moment where, uh, you know, he beat the hell out of like in high school. He can reenact the scene at a bar just like it was at a bar at that time. So, um, yeah, I think it, it loosens up a little bit. And dinner, people are happy, right, when they're eating. Yeah. And, and they're not happy meal. if they're hungry. Especially if it's a free meal. No matter how much money someone has, a free meal is a, is a... Also, like, there is really something to be said for going to see the person. Not only because you just get better stuff face to face than if you're on a phone or on a zoom, but it shows the person I'm serious about this. Like it actually says to the person and that person will probably say to his wife or a girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever. Yeah. This guy, Tyler, he's, he's flying in to see me. Like it makes them feel like they're important. And that shit really, really has some currency behind it. If we want to do this right, you know, 
you got to go balls to the wall. Like you got to be there. You, you have to, I mean, I mean, I wish all every single tight end, like it was in person for days on end, just to, to learn more. And, and it's that quest for just the next anecdote, the next story, the next uh, conversation with anybody. And I think that's kind of when I turned a corner with this reporting and, and it really became a passion because I didn't want it to end. Like you just want to keep reporting and talking and talking and traveling and traveling. And, and one thing leads to the next, at some point though, you have deadlines, right? And you try to extend them <laughs> and you got and you got to sit down and write, but it, it became so much fun. And uh, it, it was, it was fun. You know, the lighthearted stuff with, with I mentioned in Shockey there, but it got serious too, where, I mean, talking to Jackie Smith, the St. Louis Cardinals tight end, and you know, he's in tears reliving just how that Super Bowl drop affected him oh, yeah. um, for decades. I mean, it, it was emotional. I mean, you, you feel for a guy like that. And yet it's also like I'm sitting down there with my, my 94 year old grandfather, you know, it was just, <laughs> he reminded me of, of Boppy so much um, with how kind he was. And he, I and mean, he would have, he would have hung out all week. So, you know, you're not going to get that just in a phone conversation at all. Right. Also just re- Sean Green, the former baseball player said to me recently something, I don't even think he thought he was being profound, but he said, we all just get a lot nicer once we retire. And it's, I think it's a hundred percent true. I just think retired athletes are much easier to deal with than active athletes. Absolutely. And they're not worried about, especially in today's game, they're not worried about getting called into the principal's office and having like the public relations head or a head coach or a GM, you know, tiss, tiss them for being honest and it, you know, ending up on Twitter and words, you know, being out there in the ether, like it's, they don't have to worry about any of that bullshit. <laughs> so you just be honest. They got nothing to hide. Like, why, why, like here, here's my truth. Here, here's the story. Here you go. I love that stuff. All right. So wait, one of my favorite parts of a new book, whenever I get a book, a galley copy of a book, which for people who don't know is a review copy of a book. It comes with a, almost like a photocopy of the cover, not the real cover. It's paperback. And on the back, it'll give a marketing pitch. And beneath the marketing pitch, it always says something like this. And this is what yours says. And I, I joked about that before we started. National publicity and review campaign. Radio and podcast interview campaign, select in-person and virtual author appearances, social media campaign, blogger and social media influencer campaign, e-newsletter campaign. And every book has is basically cut and paste how we're going to promote the book and supposed to sound super important. And I said to you before, and I stand by this, I'm not saying you don't have a good publicist. I know you do. I have a great publicist right now working with me. Like it's on you. It is on the author. Like you have to do the grunt work. So this is your first book. You're promoting it. How's the grunt work? What is it like? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Well, I did my research on uh, Jeff Perlman's whoring, oh. and that that was a perfect place to start, right? It was uh, like I told you, it's it's like equal parts inspiring and demoralizing. Where man, this is getting me so jacked up. Like, reach out to this person, that person. Maybe maybe this podcast will have me on. We can talk about this player. Maybe they'll want an excerpt on Rob Gronkowski, and then. I'm like, holy crap. Wow. I'm, I'm only a couple weeks away here. And, and, and okay. Jeff has done this 10 times over and he's, he's handing out postcards at stadiums. Like that's, that's next level stuff. But um, that's, yeah, I'm a loser. I'm with you. that's because I'm a loser. Just so you know, it's not next level. It is loser level. Most authors hate it. Do you hate it? Or are you enjoying the challenge of it? I'm taking your lead. Like you can't have any shame. I got kids to feed shit. Like I'll, I'll go on any radio spot podcast, you know, tweet a million times. If it, somebody gets sick of it, Hey, the unfollow button's right there. I'm kind of going the uh, independent entrepreneurship route in general, like with Go Long 
it's changed the way you think. I mean, you, you better be busting ass. You better be working hard all day, all night. If you, you know, want, want this to be your career. So it's, it kind of comes back to earlier that, that adrenaline rush though. I, I love it. Like I, I need it. I can't just be sitting around and, you know, waiting for a paycheck to come in to, to every two weeks. I, I like the fact that if I'm writing stuff that people like, they're going to pay for it. If I'm not, then they're going to go somewhere else. And the book, you know, writing a book is just kind of that concept of a newsletter on roids, right? Like you, it's um, trying to cover every base and probably uh, you'll just kind of chuckle and laugh and think, oh, that this kid, he's not, he's not doing nearly as much as me. I'm trying, man. Like it's, you're the king of this stuff. But that's the key. Like, it's just trying to get, get, the, get the word out there anyway, anyhow, any show. And it's, it's all new to me. So I don't really know what to expect. But let me ask you a final thing. You, um, you started your, your Substack Go Long in November 2020. So we're coming on a two-year anniversary. And I feel like these days, two years is like 50 years in media. Everything changes. Blink, 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 blink. Has it been what you thought it would be is the Substack model, was it made for these times? Do you feel like there are flaws that we did not consider? Is it the greatest thing ever? I love it. I wouldn't want to do anything else. I know that sounds like a, you know, a prepackaged answer, but I genuinely mean that, Jeff. Like, I've had some job opportunities at newspapers, at sites, big, big places. I've reached out. And honestly, I, I, right now, I, I this is what I want to do long-term. I want to make this work because I, I genuinely believe that people kind of get it. They understand if I want to read six, 7,000 word story, a series with meat on the bone, that's going to show me something happening behind that curtain. I've got to fork over, you know, eight a month or 50 a year. And, and I think that they genuinely enjoy being part of a community too. And it, that, that's, what's really cool about it is even though it's a, it's an NFL site, it's long form on the national level. I live here in Western New York and so I feel like I've got different communities where we've got the go long community, people who enjoy reading long form stuff. But even here in Western New York, I do a, like a show with Isaiah McKenzie. He's a Bill slot receiver oh. at a bar. I was just there last night. I mean, the place is packed and there's guys who subscribe to my site just hanging out, you know, from the North towns and they're bringing up stories. Right? Like that, that's cool. That brings me back to like the college days at the daily orange at Syracuse where you'd write a column, you know, so now they got to bench Greg Paulus for Ryan Nazib. And you're at the bar with your buddy debating it, right? Like that, that sense of community is, is pretty cool. And I feel like that Substack model, that newsletter model of direct to consumer, you know, no ads, like you're not relying on corporate this or hitting numbers. It's just writing directly for somebody is that concept. It's, it's very intimate and I love it. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It gets me excited to wake up in the morning to, to attack it. And I love that. Let's hope it works. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful. I love it. I'm going to do something I've never done to wrap this. I got five rapid fire football questions for you. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. I need yes or no. Russell Wilson, is he done as a legit major NFL star quarterback? Done, finished, washed, cook. I'm out. This is off that. Would you take Geno Smith over Russell Wilson as your starting quarterback in 2022? Yeah, because you don't got to worry about all the other BS too. I mean- there's a lot that comes with Russell Wilson. And I think he's genuinely, I, that might be a little strong. You talk to people close to him. He is a genuinely hard worker, nice, God-fearing husband, father, all of that. But the phoniness and there's just the baggage. And there's a reason John Schneider wanted to get rid of him 
at least a full year before they did. I, I think they were just kind of tired of it and kind of, kind of like a lot of these stars at the end, right? I mean, it was it was time to go. And Geno Smith just might be a better quarterback at this point, too. All right, number two. Are the New York Jets a playoff team? I'm going to say no. But thing, things are on the up. Yep. I still feel like we know more about Zach Wilson's, you know, propensity for, you know, 40 and 50-year-old women off the field than we do as – his quarterback skills. So I, I agree. He, he's, he's, he's such an unknown still. So I, I can't get there yet. Is Daniel Jones a legit NFL starting quarterback? Oh man, that's a great question. I've been wrapping my head around this. He looked great in that green Bay game. I mean, that was such a big win. I, the numbers were black, but if you actually watch that game, the bloody hand playing on the bad ankle, hitting some big third downs to beat Aaron Rodgers, it that was probably his best win to date, but I think it's Brian Dayball getting the absolute most out of Daniel Jones right right now. I, I think that they're still going to have to make that tough decision at quarterback. We'll see what happens. If he goes out and wins 12, 13 games, they win a playoff game. What are you going to do? I mean, you can't, you can't bench that guy. They know what they have. I mean, when you're direct snapping to Saquon Barkley, you're doing some of the gimmicky stuff, that kind of hints at, all right, we, we know what we have here at quarterback. Less likely to be in the NFL next year. Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold? Oh, man. You're talking to a major Baker apologist here. It, it, it kills me to see how this year's going. And I'll sit here and I'll, I'll blame Ben McAdoo and Matt Rule and the Panthers till kingdom come, but Baker hasn't looked that good. It's going to be Sam Darnold, though, still. I think, I think that Baker will hang. He'll, he'll, he'll hang around a little, a little longer than Sam Darnold because Darnold kind of went through this, and it was even worse last year. I think Baker's still a little better. Final question. I have a friend from my hometown of Mayo Pack, New York, named Matt Walker, really nice guy, and he maintains – that everyone in the NFL is wrong and that Lamar Jackson is a system quarterback. He's inaccurate. He's vastly overrated. He's not that good. Blah, blah, blah. What do you say to Matt Walker, my friend from Mayo Pack, New York? I tell him to buy blood and guts and read the Ozzie Newsome chapter. That's what I, <laughs> will you relay that message for me? I will. Because Ozzie Newsome, great conversation with Ozzie. And like the way that he was discovered by Sam Rutigliano and the Browns, and they had this vision for him as a tight end, you know, that creature kind of in line and then doing these different things. Um, he used that as a GM, right? I mean, granted, they did draft Hayden Hurst ahead of Lamar Jackson. So we always have to preface with that. Like everybody passed on Lamar, but he was still willing to just, you know, throw away everything he thought about the quarterback position in a way nobody else was willing to that. The NFL, there's a lot of sticks up, you know, where, and they're so stuck in their way schematically. Like they, they were the one team willing to just build a system completely around Lamar Jackson. I asked him, is there a connection between how you were discovered and how you kind of, you know, put your money and banked on Lamar Jackson. And he said there really was. So I, I think that um, it's not a system. Like he is just rare. He's transcendent. He, He's a running back playing quarterback in the best possible ways. He's got to hit on some of those deep balls he missed against Cincinnati. Like you're going to have one-on-one opportunities deep when you're such a threat to run that that touch is just, it it kind of flickers on and off, but I'd still take him over everybody, but like Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. I just want to say Tyler, I mean, seriously, this is how I'll wrap this. What I really dig about you and what I can appreciate. And even though this is over zoom, it just oozes off the screen is like, like by the time I was done covering baseball, I was like, people would be asking me like, well, blah, 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 Jeter. And I'd be like, Ugh, I just, I don't care. Like, I don't care. And your passion for this game, all these years into covering it and your enjoyment of discussing it 
does not come off sticky at all. It doesn't come off bullshit at all. You just seem like a guy who feels really blessed to be covering football and writing a book about football. And it's fucking refreshing as all hell, man. So I like, seriously, <laughs> I'm really happy for you. I'm so happy it's worked out for you. I'm happy about your new book. And I, I just, man, I really appreciate you doing this. Oh God. Hey, that's so nice of you to say, Jeff. I mean, I re- really appreciate it. coming from you. I, I can't tell you what that, that means. And you've been an idol for several oh, years. I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke. I promise. I, I really mean it. I mean, bef- long before we even spoke a word to each other, um, you produce a piece of content. I, I feel the instant urge to read every word. I think when we were DMing, like I got, I got the Bo Jackson book here. And I'm like, son of a, I can't just like read multiple books at once too much. I'm like, so I think I even told you, like, I got to get through this nonsense book right now. And then I cannot wait to dive into this. So I just started. It's epic. It's unbelievable. Everybody should buy that book as well. And um, thanks so much for having me. This, is, this has been great. I want to thank today's guest, Tyler Dunn, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Ty Dunn and read his work at golongtd.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, my upcoming book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, drops on October 25th, but is available for pre-order now. Music is by the sizzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.